Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. Scripture reading this morning is going to be 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verses 4 through 7. This uh, description of Christian love that we have been studying in some detail for the last several weeks. And we will continue it for the next couple of weeks, even into the Advent season, because it is appropriate that we do so. For when we think about why Christ came, He, he came, Paul tells us, to redeem for Himself a people who are zealous for good works. And those good works are defined by nothing other than Christian love. He came to redeem for Himself a people who are zealous to love and to love well. And therefore, it is appropriate that we should ask, what does such love look like? Especially this time of year as we think about the coming of our Savior. So let's le- read again these familiar words. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4-7. through 7. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 960. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon our study here this morning. Father God, this is Your Word. And we ask that You would be with us by Your Spirit as we give our attention to it here this morning, Father. May the same Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words now be with us, opening our minds to to understand and opening our hearts to receive, that they might renew, that they might put down root, that they might bring forth fruit, all to the praise of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you thought that love required you or or at least encouraged you to do something immoral, something that you considered wrong, but, but you, you thought that it was the loving thing to do. You thought it was the best way to love your neighbor in this particular situation. Or, or maybe you were in a situation where you thought it was the loving thing to do to allow someone else to do something that you regarded as immoral, something that you regarded as wrong, but, but you didn't see how in love you could say anything to them. I remember watching a, a television show one time where, where the dad so wanted his son to enjoy the, the, the experience of victory that, that he allowed him to cheat in a soapbox derby race. I remember another show where the dad wanted his son to get the best education and so he was willing to lie on the application. Those are fictional examples, but, but we recognize the temptation, don't we? We, we recognize the, the, the temptation when we feel that love is, rather than compelling us to obey, is actually compelling us to disobey, where it's actually compelling us to do something wrong or to affirm that something that God says is wrong is, is okay in this situation because it's the loving thing to do. Well, the phrase that we come to this morning in Paul's description of Christian love, it, it tells us in verse 6 that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. We will see this morning that what Paul is telling us is that love never demands us to do the wrong thing. 
Love never compels us to act immorally, but rather love rejoices in the truth. Rad, love rejoices with that which accords with righteousness. And we begin to see that this is what Paul means when we, we notice first the contrast that Paul is setting before us. Look again at the way it is written in the English Standard Version. It says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now some of your translations may have a word like unrighteousness instead of wrongdoing. It's a, it's a word that simply means the, the negation of righteousness. It's odd to kao. It is the, the, the opposite of what is righteous, the opposite of what is right in any particular situation, that which is contrary to God's word, that which is contrary to God's law. And Paul here sets out a contrast between that which is unrighteous, that which is wrong, and the truth. Now, that's not the contrast that we expect. We, we rather, we expect unrighteousness to be contrasted with righteousness. We expect doing wrong to be contrasted with doing right. We expect truth, on the other hand, to be contrasted with falsehood. When something is not true, it is false. But here, Paul sets up a contrast between that which is wrong and that which is true. And if you're familiar with Paul's letters, you know that, that he uses this contrast quite often. In Romans chapter 2, verse 8, he says that God will one day render to each one according to his works. He's, he's speaking of the, the final judgment, and he says this. He says, to the one who by patience and well-doing seeks for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath. And fury. So there also, Paul draws a contrast between the truth and unrighteousness. He does the same thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, The coming of the lawless one is the activity of Satan, and with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, what does he say? God sends a delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So again, there's a contrast between believing the truth, between delighting in the truth and taking pleasure in unrighteousness, taking pleasure in that which is wrong. It's a contrast that, that Paul uses often, a contrast between the truth and that which is unrighteous. So why does Paul set up the contrast that way? What is, the, what is his point? What is it that he is trying to teach us? I, I think that when we look at this contrast, we begin to see that what Paul wants us to see is that there is a correspondence between righteousness and, and truth. That when something is wrong, it is also false. In other words, what is morally right corresponds to the way things actually are. You, we think of something as true and it corresponds to reality. And Paul says not only is there a correspondence between truth and reality, but there is actually a correspondence between righteousness and reality. Morality is not arbitrary. God does not arbitrarily decide what he will regard as right and what he will regard as wrong, as if he could have just as easily decided, well, you know, in this universe, I'm going to make adultery wrong, but I could have made it right. Or in this universe, I'm going to make murder wrong, but I, I could have made it right. I'm going to make lying wrong, but, you know, I could have just as easily said that it was a good thing to deceive your neighbor. That's not the way that God operates. Now, we have to be careful at this point, because we're not saying 
We're not saying that there is a standard of right and wrong that is above God. We're not saying that God is somehow subject to a higher law than Himself. Not at all. God is the higher law. God is the standard of right and wrong. But you have to understand that God's will is not arbitrary, but rather God's will, what He calls good and what He calls evil, reflects His own character. He speaks out of who He is. And that means... That what he calls good is actually good. Because not only does his will reflect his character, but so does the universe that he created. You see, God's law reflects who God is, but so does the world that he created us to live in, where he created that law to work. They both reflect God's character. And therefore, what is morally right in God's universe reflects God's character just as the universe itself does. Paul tells us that God created the universe to reveal who he is, that he created the universe to to reveal his, his power and his nature, and that in those things his will is clearly foreseen. But he also tells us That in that same universe where where the, the nature of reality reflects the nature of God, what is right and wrong in that universe also reflects God's character. And so therefore, when people act in accord with nature, when they act in accord with the way things actually are, when they act in accord with with God's nature as it's revealed in creation, their actions are deemed good. They are called righteous. And when people defy God's nature, when they defy God's design, when they do things contrary to God's intent, and therefore out of accord with nature, those actions are called evil. This is the the way that the universe works. This is the way that the, the, the Scriptures speak. What is true corresponds with what is right. What is false corresponds with what is evil. Now, I know, unless you're a philosophy student, that's all a little bit esoteric. So, so let's look at, a, at a, a specific example to see if we can understand it. And Paul actually does that. As he moves on in Romans 1, he gives us a very concrete example of what he is talking about. Moving on in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes these words. He says, Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. So you hear what Paul's saying? He says, because they exchanged the truth, because they stopped believing the truth, because they suppressed the truth, God gave them up to darkened minds to do things that are contrary to nature. Now at this point you have to understand what Paul means by nature because people today talk about things that feel natural. Well, it just feels natural. That that, that means that it's easy. It's in accord with, with what we like to do. That's not at all what Paul has in mind when he speaks of what is natural. He doesn't mean that it feels natural. He Rather, he means that it is in accord with God's design for nature. God created the universe to work a certain way, and what is natural is his blueprint, his design for that creation. God made man, male and female. He, he created men to unite with women and women to unite with, with men. And when they do it the other way, it is unnatural. It is contrary to God's 
design. And therefore, because it is unnatural, because it is a violation of God's design, God says it is immoral. It is unrighteous. But of course, we could apply this same logic to to other reasoning as well. We We could apply it to other immoral behaviors. Those things that God calls evil, He calls evil because they are contrary to His design. So it's not just homosexual relationships, it's also heterosexual relationships. When there's heterosexual relationships outside of the bonds of marriage, God says, that's not natural, that's not what I intended, that's not my design. We can say that that God forbids those relationships because they are unnatural. God created men and women to unite sexually only within the bonds of a covenantal till death do us part marriage. And when they unite apart from that, apart from that covenant, apart from that marriage, it is against God's design. It is unnatural and therefore it is wrong. But not only do we know that it's wrong, we also know that it's false. It's contrary to God's intention for His creation, and His intentions are good. Therefore, what is contrary to His good intentions is not only immoral, it is harmful. It means that it is, it is, it is contrary to what is, promotes health. It's like eating the wrong foods. It's like eating something that's, that's poisonous that God never intended us to eat. It's like taking your sports car off-road and wondering why it gets broken. He says, listen, that's not the way that God intended these things work. And so by contrasting truth with with unrighteousness, Paul is is making it clear to us that that morality is not arbitrary. But rather, morality corresponds to truth. It corresponds to the way things actually are. And this gives us insight into why God forbids these things. God forbids certain actions because in His nature, in His creation, those things bring death and destruction. And so in love, God says to us, don't go there. Those things lead only to death. God doesn't forbid something just because. Much less does He forbid something because He hates us and and desires to spoil our fun. But on the contrary, God gives us His moral law because He loves us. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that He calls us to be saints because He loves us. He knows that His moral law is the blueprint for life as it is supposed to be. His moral law is a picture of how the abundant life works. It is a picture of human flourishing. It is a picture of the best life that we can have in this world. And when we begin to see that, when we begin to understand this correspondence between truth and and unrighteousness, that that what is righteous is true and what is unrighteous is, is false, when we begin to see that, it helps us to understand what Paul means when he says that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Think about what love is. We've seen it over the last several weeks. Love is a, a sincere and earnest desire for the good of another. A desire that moves us to act for their true benefit. So love is a feeling, it is an emotion, it is a desire for the good of another that compels us to act in their best interest. And because love desires the good of the other, because love desires the good of your neighbor, it therefore cannot rejoice in wrongdoing because wrongdoing or unrighteousness is never for the good of our neighbor. 
It is never good to encourage our neighbor to to move outside the bonds of of, of God's design for his creation. It is never good for us to, to move. It is never good for our neighbor for us to move outside of those bonds. And so love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. First, it doesn't rejoice in our own wrongdoing. We cannot love our neighbor and at the same time find joy in sinning against them. We cannot love our neighbor and at the same time cherish iniquity because when we do wrong... It harms our neighbor. Even those sins that we think of as victimless end up having a a community effect. They they end up disrupting relationships. They end up bringing harm. They end up defrauding. They end up costing. There is a cost associated with sin. It brings death and destruction into human community. And so therefore, we cannot cherish our sins and love our neighbor at the same time. Not only do we want to be free of our sins because of the damage that they do to us, But we want to be free of our sins because of the damage that they do to our neighbors. Now I recognize that that the desire for for sin, the desire for the pleasures of sin, it is something that we all struggle with. It's why we have a confession of sin as a regular part of our worship service. We are redeemed. We have been called out of darkness into light. And yet, what does Peter tell us? That the passions of our former ignorance continue to wage war against our soul. That they continue to lure and entice, James says. And far too often we, we allow ourselves to be lured and enticed. Far too often we walk according to the patterns of our former ignorance rather, in, rather than in the truth and in the light. We, we struggle with this desire for sin. If, if there wasn't a desire there, there wouldn't be any temptation. Now, by God's grace, we have new desires We have new hearts that that delight in righteousness. And we can say with Paul, the good I want to do, I don't. And the evil I hate is what I keep on doing. And there is that internal struggle. But it is a struggle. And Paul is telling us that we have to struggle against those passions. We have to, to struggle against those temptations. Not only because of the damage they do to us. But also, maybe even primarily because of the damage that they do to others. When we sin, when we we indulge the passions of our flesh, we harm our neighbors, we harm our community. And so therefore, love cannot delight in unrighteousness. But not only can love not delight in its own unrighteousness, love can also not find joy in wrong done by others. Now, at first, that sounds a little strange. We all know what it is to, to struggle with uh, delighting in our own sins. But what does it mean to delight in the sins of another? Why would anyone ever be tempted to do that? Well, Paul actually goes on to discuss this idea of delighting in the sins of others a little later in, in Romans chapter 1. As he continues to move through this chapter, he ends the chapter by talking about those who, who not only do these things, these things that ought not to be done. He says there are not only people who do these things, but there are people who call these things good. They not only do them, but they give their approval to them. They they call them good. Now, why would anyone want to call evil good? I would suggest to you that it's something that we all struggle with, whether we recognize it or not. Sometimes we do it when we sort of delight in sins vicariously, whether it's through a movie or a video game or, or a book. There are ways that we can sort of delight in sins that we don't actually want to commit out in public, but we, we still delight in it. But that's, that's actually more akin to delighting in our own sin. What I have in mind is, is something else. What I have in mind is the temptation that we face to affirm another's sin as something that's good or something that's legitimate for them. 
Sometimes we do this with, with friends so that we won't seem judgmental. We know that what they are doing isn't in accord with God's law. We know that it is contrary to what God calls right, and yet we don't want to come off as the holier-than-thou Christian, and so we say, well, you know, that's their choice. That's really up to them. That's, that's between them and God. And so we, we affirm, we, we, we delight in, we, we fail to call sin, sin, and we simply affirm it as their choice. We do this with small things. We do this with big things. We, we do this with abortion in our country. How many evangelicals are there in our country today that, that are willing to say, well, you know, I'm not for that personally, but it's their choice. We, we affirm their right to choose. As if somehow that makes us more loving. But love does not delight in unrighteousness no matter what the context. It doesn't delight in its own sin. It doesn't delight in, in sins vicariously. And it certainly doesn't delight in the sins of others because love is for the good of the neighbor. And being for the good of the neighbor means being against unrighteousness because unrighteousness in God's universe is never in the best interest of our neighbor. It is never truly loving to affirm another person's sins, to to call another person's sins their good or their choice. If righteousness accords with truth, which accords with God's good and perfect will, His his good and perfect design for His creation, then unrighteousness is always out of accord with God's good and perfect will for His creation. And therefore, if it's out of accord with God's design, then it is out of accord with our neighbor's good. You cannot, at the same time, delight in unrighteousness and be seeking the good of your neighbor. Now, I would suggest to you that the world actually has a sense of this this principle. They they have a sense of this idea that that what is good is what is loving. But you see, they turn it on its head. The world gets this almost exactly backwards. The world says, because I deem this thing to be good and loving, because this seems like the kind thing, because this seems like the patient thing, because this seems like the good thing to me, therefore, it must be the morally right thing to do. Because it seems loving, therefore it must be morally right. And we go on what we seems to be loving to us and therefore determine what is morally right. This is what the world did with, with sex in the, in the 60s. They said, listen, it feels right. It must be right, therefore. Then they began to do it with homosexuality, as we saw. And they said, well, you know, it, it feels right to them. This seems natural to them. Therefore, it must be right to let them express it. And even today, they, they begin to, to do it with, with gender confusion as they say, listen, you know, it's what they feel. It feels right to them, therefore it must be morally right. And in each case, the, the world decided what seemed loving to its sensibilities must be the morally right thing to do. But see, that's not the way Paul's logic works. Paul is is not trying to say to us, you know, try to figure out what feels loving and then you'll know what the right thing to do is. Rather, his his logic is working in exactly the other direction. Think about what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, listen, what is right is plain and obvious. What is right is revealed in the very fabric of creation, plus explicitly set forth in God's word. What is right is not hard to figure. There's There's a place in one of Paul's letters where he says, listen, It's not a mystery to figure out God's will. Here is God's will. Be holy as he is holy. (laughs) This is God's will for your life. 
And then he goes on to apply that to a number of specific situations. But be holy as as God is holy. Figuring out what is morally right is not the mystery here. What Paul wants us to see is that what is morally right, what is set forth in God's Word, is a picture of what is truly loving regardless of our fallen sensibilities. Our fallen sensibilities will mislead us. Our fallen sensibilities will lie to us. Our fallen sensibilities will say it is kind and it is loving to affirm this or to, or to give your approval to that. And if God's Word says those things are wrong, then it can never be loving. It can never be truly in your neighbor's best interest to call those things good. And I believe that as, as the church engages the world, this is where we must take our stand far too often the world is, is all for denouncing immorality, but they, but they come across as, as mean. <laughs> they come across as judgmental. They, they come across as just bitter. You know, we can't have that fun and neither can you either. You know, don't do it. But rather we ought to be saying to the world, listen, we have a God who is good. He has designed things to work a certain way. And because we love you, we love you too much to affirm a, a community that is normalizing behavior that he calls destructive. Why are you against gender-inclusive bathrooms? I hear far too many Christians who say, well, you know, that's, that's dangerous or it's just gross. Those are not Christian reasons. <laughs> Those are not Christian reasons to, to oppose But rather, we stand against this because we say, listen, we love those who are gender confused too much to allow this culture to normalize their behavior, to call it healthy. But rather, we love them. We say, listen, we want to call you out of that because this is killing you. This is not health. This is not good. We have a God who has designed things to work another way. And we long for you to experience the joy of His design. We long for you to experience the goodness of His blueprint. We love you too much to say this is okay. Because it's not. There is no health there. The pleasures are fleeting. And the destruction is eternal. That's why we oppose, because love does not delight in unrighteousness. Love does not find joy in wrongdoing. The world may still not listen to us. It may still think of our our reasons as just sort of rationalizing our, our bigotry. I can't control what the world believes. That's the Spirit's job. But we can approach the matters as Christians and we can say, listen... It's not to protect our interests. It's not to, to, to protect ourselves. We are willing to bear your burdens, but because we love you, we are willing to call you out. Because love cannot delight in unrighteousness. It is never the loving thing to do to affirm the goodness of that which God calls sin. But in some ways, that's sort of an easy test case. We're against that anyway. Okay, okay, yeah, well, that's right. We can, we can be against that. We can be against it because we're loving but that's the, that's the easy case. Where does, this, where does this challenge us? Where does, it, where does it challenge us? Where are we tempted in the course of our daily routines to affirm unrighteousness because it seems to us the loving thing to do? I believe parents face this temptation regularly. When they look at their children and then when they think about how they're going to raise them, when they think about how they're going to uh, teach them about what is really good in life, they, they face the temptation. Are they going to affirm God's righteousness or are they going to affirm the, the standards of the world? 
In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper talks about the temptation that that parents face when defining success for their kids. And they say there are far too many parents are opposed to their kids going into some sort of ministry or working for a nonprofit or or becoming a missionary because it will mean a a lower standard of living. It will mean less prestige. and, And they think their children are capable of so much more. As parents, what do we affirm to be the true sunum bonum for our children? What do we affirm to be what is truly good? How do we define success for our children? And not only is it when we are raising our children up, but when our children deviate from the way that we have brought them up, how many parents begin to rethink their morality? How many parents begin to rethink their, their theology? Well, my kid is going here. My kid is living this way. Therefore, I need, to, I need to rethink. I need to find some way to affirm because they're my kid and I love them. I can't call what they're doing sin. But Paul says, listen, it is never true love to affirm unrighteousness. It is never true love to, to affirm sin. No matter how offensive it may be, you must continue to call truth, truth. And you must continue to call sin, sin. Now, let me offer a word of warning here. That that doesn't mean that you get to be obnoxious about it. It doesn't mean you get to forget all the other characteristics of love that we've seen up to this point. Remember, love is patient and kind. It is not envious or boastful. It is not arrogant or or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or, or resentful. All those things still apply, and they apply in the way that we speak the truth, even to our children and to our friends as they go in different directions. But what love can never do is love can never affirm unrighteousness. Love can never say, well, that's, that's okay. That's, 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 a, that's a valid choice for you. Because love desires the good of the neighbor. Love desires the good of the child. Love desires the good of the friend. And love recognizes that the true good of your neighbor is always bound up with the truth. Always bound up with God's design for his creation. High school students, college students, have you ever been tempted to affirm the immoral behavior of your, of your friends? Simply that, so that you can not seem judgmental, simply so that you can seem like you're being a, a good friend? Of course you have. We all face that temptation. It doesn't stop after college. Paul says true love does not delight in wrongdoing. We cannot call evil good. We we cannot affirm unrighteousness because unrighteousness is never for the good of our neighbor. And so as we look at this contrast, as as we look at what Paul sets before us, he says, listen, love delights in truth because truth is true. Because truth corresponds to God's design and God's designs are good. And this is where true love finds its delight. The world says it's unloving to call certain sins sins. Whether on our own lives or in the lives of others, it it feels natural. It feels right. Therefore, it must be right. It, It can't be wrong. That is exactly the way of thinking that Paul is challenging. Paul says, don't buy the lie. True love never rejoices at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. A truth That is not some mystery out there, but a truth that is defined by God's Word. A truth that is reflected in the very fabric of creation. 
question that we face as those who are called to, to love our neighbors well is will we believe God's word? We, we face the same temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. They, they face the challenge. Will you allow God to define for you right and wrong? Or will you lean on your own understanding and, and do what seems right in your own eyes? That's the challenge that we face every day. And if we were left to ourselves, we would follow in our first parents' footsteps. If we were left to ourselves, we would go the way of the world. But God in His mercy has not left us to Himself. That's what Christmas is about. God did not leave us to Himself, but He came to us. He sent His Son, born of a virgin, that we might be redeemed from our former ignorance, that we might be redeemed from the vanity of the world, that we might be set free to truly love. That we might be set free to love even when it's costly. That we might be set free to love even when the world regards it as anything but. Jesus said, listen, if you follow me, you will be hated. You will be persecuted. And loving well will not always mean being received well. Jesus Himself was hated. Jesus Himself was, was crucified. If you seek to love the world this way, there will be costs. It will hurt. You will be reviled. But it is not loving to compromise. Because love does not delight in unrighteousness. But it rejoices in the truth. And if you have received and rested upon Jesus Christ for your salvation, then He has filled you with His Holy Spirit. And you now have all the immeasurable power of God to stand firm. And with all of the love of Christ to say to the world, this is the way of life. Imitate me even as I imitate Christ. And because we have received such a calling, we who were by nature the same objects of wrath like the rest of mankind, because we have received such a calling, and because we have been empowered to live lives worthy of that calling, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Pray with me. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. Father, we are tempted daily to rejoice in unrighteousness. We are daily tempted to affirm that what feels right must be right. Father God, I pray that You would keep us from such foolishness. That You would strengthen us to stand firm upon the truth. And that You would strengthen us to be ambassadors of that truth, Father, with gentleness and with kindness and with great patience that Your name might be received and that Your glory might be praised. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.